If you would turn back to Psalm 32, that's where we'll be this morning. Let me ask you, what's the first word that comes to your mind when I say the name Richard Nixon? I think for many of you, the word Watergate probably comes to mind. That's because Nixon is infamous for his involvement in the Watergate scandal in which he participated in several illegal activities such as wiretapping phones and stealing documents in an attempt to, to win his reelection to office. But you know, the interesting thing is President Nixon never spent a day in prison for his involvement with the Watergate scandal. He never paid a fine, and from what I understand, he never really even gave a public heartfelt admission of guilt. Why? Why has he not paid for his crimes? The answer is because he received a presidential pardon from President Gerald Ford, his vice president, who took office after him, who pardoned him for any, uh, any well, I was going to say sins, but pardoned him for any of his uh, illegal activity during his presidential rule. Now, you know that word pardon is very interesting. It's one of the most powerful actions that a U.S. president can take. And a pardon is interesting because when someone is pardoned, they are not saying that that person is innocent. In fact, a pardon really is a declaration of the person's guilt, is it not? A pardon means that a person is guilty of a crime and deserves to be punished for that crime, but instead of receiving their punishment, they will instead be forgiven. That's what it means to be pardoned. What a sweet and wonderful word, this word forgiven. Forgiveness. When's the last time that you took some intentional time to dwell on this word forgiven? You know, as, as human beings, we desperately need forgiveness because, of course, we've sinned against a holy God. And the thing about sinning against a holy God who is omnipresent and omniscient is that we do all of our sinning right in God's face. He was there for every one of your wayward thoughts, every one of your sinful words, every one of your sinful actions. He needs no legal team. He needs no witnesses. He himself has a front row seat to every sin that we have ever committed. And so there is no arguing with him. It is undeniable that we are guilty and we desperately need forgiveness. We need a divine pardon. King David understood this. He, he knew what it was to be guilty before God and, and he knew what it was to be forgiven. And he describes that experience for us in Psalm 32, where we'll be this morning. Now, before we dive into the psalm, let me just give you a little bit of history here. This is a psalm, of, as we've said, of David, and it's a penitential psalm, which means the content of the psalm revolves around repentance and seeking forgiveness. There are seven penitential psalms in the Psalter. This is the second of those. And perhaps when you hear David and repentance, you think of another psalm, Psalm 51, and you would be right to do so. Psalm 51 is the famous psalm where, where David pours out his heart to God, begging for forgiveness over his sin with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. What's interesting, though, is that Psalm 32 shares the exact same history and context. 
Psalm 32 is a second psalm written by David concerning the exact same sin when he sinned with Bathsheba. The difference is Psalm 51, if you read Psalm 51, is sort of this raw, passionate expression in the heat of the moment. You can feel that almost the tears and the sweat of David as he's on his knees before the Lord begging for forgiveness. Psalm 32 is more reserved. It seems that Psalm 32 may have been written a little later by David as he had had time to reflect on exactly what God had done for him. And so in Psalm 32, he describes the forgiveness that he's received, but then also gives instruction to us on how we too should seek forgiveness from God. If you see there, Underneath the title, which by the way, the titles are not inspired, neither are the inscriptions there, a psalm of David, a maskil. There's not really agreement among scholars on the exact meaning of this word maskil, but at least in this case, it seems to mean this is a teaching psalm. It's a psalm of instruction. We are intended to learn something from this psalm, and I would argue that this is the theme, this is the key idea that we're to take away from Psalm 32. The blessing of God's forgiveness must drive us to repentance and worship. Let me say it again. The blessing of God's forgiveness must drive us to repentance and worship. I want us to see three observations this morning about forgiveness. And I'll give them to you up front and then we'll fill them in together. Observation number one is in verses one and two. Forgiveness produces joy. Forgiveness produces joy. In verses 3 to 5, we're going to see a second observation. Forgiveness demands repentance. And then in verses 6 to 11, we'll see a third observation. Forgiveness elicits worship. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again as we look at this first observation. Psalm 32, verse 1 begins, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now in the beginning of the psalm here in verses 1 and 2, David gives us a kind of overarching truth. Really, this is the point that he wants to get across in this psalm, verses 1 and 2, the blessing of forgiveness. And then after that, he's going to give several instructions based upon this overarching idea. But we're going to spend the bulk of our time on verses 1 and 2 because this is the heart of the psalm. This is what David wants us to get. And he repeats this phrase, how blessed, two different times, once in verse 1, a second time in verse 2. Now, we can't just skip past this phrase, how blessed. It's a popular phrase in the Psalms. Perhaps your mind turns to Psalm 1, which is maybe the most famous example of how blessed is the man, the blessed man. But we have to talk about this word blessed because, unfortunately, it's, it's often misused in certain Christian circles. And so we, we mis- misunderstand it. We often think of being blessed as receiving something, receiving a physical possession or, or receiving something good. We are blessed when we get certain things. But that's not really the, the thought process at all in David's mind when he says, how blessed is this person? Steve Lawson says the meaning of the word blessed here is really happy, joyful, or exuberant. We could say how happy or how joyful is this person. 
And understand, this is not a fleeting emotion of happiness that, that anyone can experience, believer or non-believer. This is the, the special joy and happiness that comes to a believer in God who has a right relationship with God. It's one who has received God's favor and grace. In this context, the blessed person is the one who knows God's forgiveness, one who has been forgiven by holy God. David makes use of Hebrew poetry here, and specifically parallelism. You'll notice he says, how blessed, in verse 1, and he follows that with two statements. And then he says, how blessed, again, in verse 2, and follows that with two statements. That's this idea of parallelism. And really, he says the exact same thing multiple different ways, but each statement sort of unpacks another layer of meaning. I want us to peel back those layers together. And notice he uses three words to describe sin and then three more words to describe forgiveness. And, and in, in some ways those words are interchangeable, but really what he's doing is giving us a full picture of what it means to sin against God and then a full picture of what it means to be forgiven by God. So I want to look at each of these three words for sin first. Notice in verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression is the first word for sin. This word in Hebrew refers to rebellion against God. Rebellion. It highlights the fact that every single time we sin, we are acting as rebels against our holy God and creator. The second word is the word sin. Verse 1, whose sin is covered. The word sin in Hebrew here means to have broken God's law, literally to fall short. You might think of Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. We have not kept the law of God perfectly. But then he uses a third word for sin, the word in iniquity. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now, iniquity is a word that means corrupt, twist, or crooked. It's the idea of that sin is perversion. It's a twisting of God's intention, of God's design. When we sin, we take the good gifts that God has given, and we twist them into something that God hates. So in summary then, here's the idea of, of sin. Sin includes rebellion against God, falling short of his divine standard and the perversion of the way he created us to live, act, and think. All of those things combined are sin. Now, our reaction when we hear that and hear those words defined should be disgust. It should turn our stomachs at the thought that we have committed each of those things, that we have been rebels against God, that we have broken the law, we have fallen short of God's standard, and that we have twisted and perverted the good things that God has made to use for evil. And that should, should create this heavy weight upon us of conviction. But that weight is then to be seen through the lens of three more words. And these are the three words that David uses to describe forgiveness. First of all, look back at verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven. That Hebrew word, forgiven, means to lift off. To lift off. For the Christian, God has lifted off the burden of guilt 
that weighs us down because of our sin. Steve Lawson writes, unconfessed sin is like a great burden on God's people, weighing them down mentally and emotionally. If you're a true Christian this morning, then you know all too well what that feels like, that weight of sin bearing down upon you. And what we desire is for God to lift that weight. That's what this word forgiveness means. Forgiven is to lift off. But the second word he uses here is the word covered, whose sin is covered. I love this word covered. We could do a whole message on the word covered because covered refers to the day of atonement. On the day of atonement, remember that was a, a festival once a year where the, the high priest was allowed to go into the most holy place, the holy of holies, and he only went there once a year. And remember, they would tie a rope around his leg in case he passed out or fainted or died so they could drag him out without having to go in. I mean, this was a serious situation. You were going before the very presence of God was the idea. And when he got into that most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And remember, on top of that little box was a lid, a golden lid that was called the mercy seat. And he would take blood from an animal that had just been sacrificed and, and caught in a bowl, and he would go up to that mercy seat and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat seven times, the number of perfection. And what was that symbolizing? Basically, what that high priest is saying is, is, God, we know that we've broken your law. Remember, the law of God was inside that, the, those stone tablets of Moses. They're inside that Ark of the Covenant. And so he's sprinkling the blood between him and the people and the broken law of God as if to say, God, we have broken your law. Let the blood of this innocent one cover, atone for, pay for our sin. That's the symbolism that's happening there. And that's the symbolism here. He's not just saying, blessed is the one whose sin is covered because God just sort of takes a holy blanket and throws it over your sin in the corner. It sits there all the time, just, but he just pretends it's not there. That's not what it means. It means blessed is the one who has had a perfect sacrifice, the blood atonement of a perfect sacrifice to take away the guilt of their sin, to come between the sinner and the just wrath of God. That is the word covered. But there's a third word here for sin or for forgiveness, and it's the word impute. Impute. Verse 2, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Also, a significant word in the scriptures. We have to understand the word impute. It's an accounting term. It means to credit, to credit to someone's account or to count. David is, is describing here the reality that when a, when a believer truly repents to God, God no longer credits that sin to their account. The same way that you have a bank account and you have deposits and you have withdrawals, in the same, this way, your sin is no longer credited into that account. It's removed. This idea, of course, is picked up in a major way by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, particularly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, He, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What is he saying? This is so important for us to understand. At salvation, in justification, there is a double imputation. A double imputation. This is what I'm saying. Your sin 
is credited to the account of Christ who is perfectly righteous. And the perfect righteousness of Christ is then credited into your account who is in actuality a sinner. Double imputation, double crediting. That is what must happen for a sinner to be made right in the eyes of God. Now that is a person who is truly blessed. A person who's been forgiven then is happy because he's had the weight of his sin lifted, the guilt of his sin completely covered by blood sacrifice, and it is no longer imputed to his account. That's why David says, how blessed is he of whom this is true. But he makes one final statement in verse 2, a fourth statement. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. In whose spirit there is no deceit. By adding this, David highlights the fact that when we conceal our sin, we are liars and deceivers. And on the flip side, when we confess our sins and our sins are forgiven, we're one who has no deceit because we've confessed. 1 John 1.8 talks about this idea of lying about our sin. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But David says, true blessing, true joy, true happiness is found in the one in whom there is no deceit because he's confessed, he's repented, he's brought his sin into the light. And God has forgiven him. Let me tell you, there's nothing better than laying your head on the pillow at, at night with a clear and clean conscience because you have been forgiven. That is the best sleep on the planet. It does beg the question, are you blessed according to David's definition? Are you blessed? In other words, have your sins been truly forgiven have you recognized that those words of of sin describe you that you are one who has rebelled against God that, that you are one who has broken the perfect standard of God and that you are one who has twisted and perverted the good things of God into evil things understand that only those who begin by recognizing that they are that sinner we are all three of those words can then come and repent of those sins and receive true forgiveness where the, the burden of our sin is lifted, where the, the, the guilt of our sin is covered and atoned and we are not credited our sin to our account. Understand, friend, if you have never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have not received this forgiveness that David speaks of here, but there is forgiveness for all who will come in repentance and faith in him and receive his perfect blood as the covering, as the atonement for their sins. But David's not done. Again, verses 1 and 2 really stand as an overarching statement that he's now going to unpack for us and help us understand more deeply. And so that brings us to a second observation. Forgiveness demands repentance. Forgiveness demands repentance. This is verses 3 through 5. Let's read verses 3 to 5 again. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Notice he says in verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin. David describes for us here this period in his life when he had sinned with Bathsheba and murdered her husband after committing adultery with her, but he held on to that sin. He did not immediately confess that sin to God. In fact, we don't know the exact length of time, but it was somewhere between nine months and one year that David did not repent of that sin. We know that because in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, Nathan, the prophet Nathan, comes and confronts David, and in response to that confrontation, he repents, and the baby that came from that sin with Bathsheba was already born. So we know it had to be at least nine months, perhaps even up to a year, that David is stubbornly holding on to this sin, refusing to repent. When I kept silent about my sin, this reminds us that a true believer will sin and can even commit great sin and for a time remain unrepentant for that sin. But listen to this. A true Christian will not remain in that state because God will discipline them to bring them to repentance. He will not allow them to finally be lost, but will bring them back in repentance and restoration. But notice what happened to David when he failed to repent. What was that experience like? He says, when, when that was who I was, my body wasted away through my groaning all day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Literally, the Hebrew says that his bones were worn out. He felt it physically. His conviction over his sin took a, a literal physical toll on his body. He was tormented by his sins. He says day and night. He, he couldn't sleep at night. He was kept up because of the weight of conviction. And he describes that the, 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 the place of this conviction, the source of the conviction, was the heavy hand of the Lord. He says the heavy hand of God, the heavy hand of Yahweh was on me. It's a reminder, the Lord disciplines those he loves. He convicts them of sin to bring them back to confession and restoration. He literally lost his physical strength. He said it was like the intense heat of summer. The summers there are intense as they are here, and if you've ever worked outside and just stayed out a little too long without enough water, you know what it is when the heat just literally zaps you, and, and you no longer have energy. You've got to go lay down because you're just worn out from the heat. That's what David said. My sin, it was like the fever heat of summer. I was just physically exhausted. But then David adds this word as we see in other Psalms, Selah. And this is a word that there, again, is some disagreement on exactly what it means. It's a little bit funny to me because commentators say that it either means, it's a musical term, that either means a crescendo or a pause. Now, in case you haven't studied music, those are exactly the opposite, okay? Uh, so it means one of those two very opposite things. But they have this in common. A crescendo in a song and a pause in a song is meant to draw your attention. It's meant to draw your attention to truth. That's the idea. Selah, whether it was an a, a, uh, electric guitar solo or a, or a pause, it was an electric guitar solo, but it was intended to draw your mind to truth. So when we come to the word Selah here in verse 4, 
We're to stop and think about what we just read. Stop and, and contemplate. And we need to stop and contemplate what he just said because here's the reality. It may very well be that he's just described you. Is there some secret sin in your life that today you're harboring and holding on to? And you know that you have sinned against God or, or, or others and or others, and yet you are unwilling to repent of that sin. And if it's been a, a weight of conviction for some time, you may even be physically struggling under the weight of conviction, feeling the heavy hand of Yahweh upon you. I want you to understand that if that's your condition this morning, that that heavy hand, that weight of conviction is actually the grace of God. Listen to Proverbs 3.12. It says, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. That means if you're a child of God, God loves you, and he will not allow you to stray from him, but will place his heavy hand of discipline upon you to bring you back to repentance. If this describes you this morning, if you were burdened and weighed down under a load of guilt for sin, pay close attention to what happens next in verse 5. Look at what David does. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. That was David's response. The weight had become too much, and in that interaction with, with Nathan, when, when he brings his sin to bear, David can take it no more. The crutches are removed, and he falls on his face, as it were, before God, and he spills it all. I acknowledge my sin to you. That word acknowledged is not just this casual, yeah, okay, I sin. The word acknowledge is this, this pouring out of full knowledge of sin, a full confession and if you doubt that, just go read Psalm 51. That's what he means by I acknowledge. He poured out his heart to God and acknowledged his full sin. He held nothing back. He had been a deceiver. He had been a pretender acting in front of others as if he was still this man after God's own heart when he knew he was harboring in his heart sin and he couldn't take it any longer. And he confessed. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're hiding sin, there's some secret sin in your heart. This must be your response. Full disclosure to the Lord and to whoever else you've sinned against. Say it. Acknowledge your sin. Don't hold back. Repent of that sin. Stop living as a liar and a deceiver. And if you do that, if you fully repent before the Lord, notice God's response. This really is the, the turning point in the psalm. Verse 5, the very last line, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's very difficult to put this into words. At the very moment of David's repentance, God immediately gave him full and complete forgiveness. 
It's done. The oppressive weight of guilt is lifted. It's covered. It's atoned. It's no longer imputed to his account. Like the father in the story of the prodigal son, it's as if God was there waiting on the front porch, longing, straining to see his son. And at the very first sight of the silhouette of David, he runs to him with a fatherly embrace and says, it is forgiven. It's done. When you and I turn to God in repentance, he meets us there with full and immediate forgiveness. It's done. It's gone. The guilt is lifted. It's, it's tone, atoned for. There are no caveats. There's no fine print. There's just full and complete forgiveness. This doesn't erase the reality that there may be temporal consequences brought on by our sin. David, in fact, experienced several temporal consequences because of his sin, but he no longer experienced the heavy hand of the Lord upon him because it was done. It was forgiven. It's important for us to understand this morning that maybe the, the secret sin that you're harboring is the sin of unforgiveness. You see, it's not just the repentance of David that we need to imitate this morning. It's the forgiveness of God. After all, how did Jesus teach us to pray in Matthew 6, 12? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Too often we desperately want from God and others immediate and lavish forgiveness while we sinfully insist that others earn our favor and forgiveness when they sin against us. Understand that there are certain types of sin that may break trust, and trust has to be rebuilt in a relationship, but forgiveness is to be open-handed, ready, and free when a person repents to us. We are to imitate the forgiveness of God. If you don't understand that fully, let me encourage you to go read Matthew 18. We don't have time this morning. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21, on how we're to respond as those who have been forgiven by God to lavishly forgive those who come in repentance to us. Now, at this point, we come to a, an important question that I think a lot of Christians have when it comes to asking for forgiveness as a Christian. We understand the need to ask for forgiveness to be justified, to be saved, but what about in an ongoing way? Why do I need to keep coming back to God and repenting as part of my sanctification? After all, justification means that God has forgiven you of your sin, past, present, and future. He forgives you of all of your sins. Remember, all of your sins were future when Jesus died for your sins. So if you have a hard time thinking, how are the future sins forgiven? Well, they were, they were paid for before you ever made any of them. And God says when, when you come in confession and repentance and faith, all of your sins are forgiven and righteousness is now credited to your account. So if that's true, then why do I have to keep coming back and repenting when I sin? Well, look with me at Hebrews 12 for just a moment. We're going to take a little aside because in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse uh, let's start in verse 3. The author of Hebrews explains this reality to us. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 3, says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. And 
you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I love this passage because it gives us some important clues to the answer to the question, why do I need to keep repenting after I've been justified and forgiven once for all? Remember Romans 8, 1, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's done, it's forgiven. Well, understand that before we came to Christ and salvation, we related to God as our creator and judge. You've always had a relationship with God, whether you knew it or not. It's just before you were in Christ, he was your judge and creator, and you deserved his wrath because of your rebellion. But at justification, the court case against your sin was finalized. Jesus' righteousness was applied to you and your sin to him, and now forever God will treat you as if you had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. However, there's also a change in relationship that takes place. And this is what Hebrews describes. God now treats us as sons. We're adopted into his family. And so no longer does he refer to us as if we are just creatures and those who are to be judged, but we are sons and daughters adopted into his family. And so when you sin as a Christian then, it's very similar to when your child disobeys and sins against you. Your sin will never disinherit you. It will never cause you to not be his son or daughter anymore. But it does put tension and distance in your relationship. Just as when your kids rebel, it puts tension in your relationship until that's resolved. In the same way then, when we sin against our father, it puts this distance and tension in our relationship. And so he disciplines us. He convicts us. He does really whatever's necessary to bring us back to repentance and then that relationship is intimate and resolved again. And the point of that, Hebrews 12.10 says, is our holiness, our sanctification. God continues to pursue us. And as we repent of sin, as it's revealed, he's progressively making us more and more like himself. So our repentance as believers is not essential for our justification. That's what Roman Catholicism teaches, that you're constantly being re-justified. Now, the good news of the gospel is you're justified once and for all, but our repentance as believers continues to keep us in that intimate, close father-son, father-daughter relationship with him. Now, that brings us to back to Psalm 32 and a third observation this morning. Not only does forgiveness demand repentance, but forgiveness elicits worship. Worship. This is verses 6 through 11. Let's just read verses 6 and 7 here. He begins, Therefore, 
Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. Really what he's calling us here to are, are several different actions that summed up in one package really equate to worship. Specifically in verses 6 and 7, he calls us to repentance and to trust. In, in verses 6 and 7, he's still talking to God here. In verse 8, he will speak directly to the reader or the listener. And he begins by, by encouraging people to follow in his footsteps. He says, therefore, based upon this overarching principle that the person who is blessed is the one who's forgiven, and based upon his own personal experience, therefore, everyone should come to God at a time where he may be found. This echoes Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you're still alive, then you still have the opportunity to come to God in repentance. The time is now. David goes on to describe those who trust in the Lord in this way. He says, surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him, that person who's been forgiven. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I love that image. God is our hiding place. Think about that for a moment. What David is saying is God is the one we've offended, and yet God is the one to whom we must come for forgiveness, for comfort, for refuge. The very one we have offended is the one who can provide the refuge that we need. He is our hiding place. In these descriptions, David's not saying that for the one who's forgiven of their sin, that God will keep them from all physical harm. That's not the idea. But rather, he is our hiding place in the midst of the trials of life. That the one who has gone to God in forgiveness is securely in him and he will bring us through the trials of life. Even in death, he is with us because we are eternally secure. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Reminds us that when God is our hiding place, there's nothing ultimately that man can do to us. Remember the eternal security that Jesus talked about in John 10, beginning in verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. For my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. David's reminder here is that even in the midst of the worst trials of life, in the storms of life that feel like, like a, a, a tornado tearing up everything around us, God is our hiding place when we have run to him for rescue and forgiveness, and he will see us through the trials of life. What about verses 8 and 9? He continues, and now he turns his gaze directly at us. And says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. What he's telling us here is to put off stubbornness. 
David takes on the, the, the teacher role, the instructor role, and he says, I've got something to say to you now. Put off stubbornness. If you've spent any time around horses or certainly around mules, then you know that even a well-trained horse does not just come to you willingly like they do in the movies. You have to have some kind of treat to entice them to come to you. They either have to think you have a treat or you have to actually have a treat for them to come. And then they won't do what you say unless you put all of this gear on them, a, a, a bridle and a bit to lead them where to go. David's saying, don't be like that. Don't stubbornly refuse to come to God where he has to drag you along, but come to him willingly. Run to God. Run to him as your hiding place and be forgiven of your sins. And he brings us to verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. In these final verses, David calls us to worship through rejoicing. He says the wicked, those who are still in rebellion, who have refused to repent of their sin, they know many sorrows or many pains in life. They have sorrow and pain, but what's worse than that, they have no hiding place because they've rejected the only hiding place there is and have refused to come to God in repentance. Believers, too, experience trials and hardships in this life, but notice the experience that David says a believer has in the midst of those trials. He says, he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. That word loving kindness is a really crucial word to understand. It's the Hebrew word hesed. If you don't know any other Hebrew words, you ought to know hesed because it's, it's God's covenant love. Some translations render it steadfast love. Hesed is God covenanting. And when God makes a covenant, he doesn't break a covenant. God's saying, this is my loyal love that I have set upon you, that I have covenanted, that I will keep for you for eternity. The one who trusts in the Lord has said surrounding him, the steadfast covenant love of God. Yes, we go through trials, we have pains, we have sorrows, but unlike the unbeliever here who has no hiding place, no resting place, even in the midst of trouble, we are surrounded by the steadfast love of God. You see here that repentance requires trust and faith. He says, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness surrounds him. It requires us to trust God to come to him in repentance because we're trusting that the Holy One, who's full of wrath over sin, will be gracious to us as he says when we come to him in humble faith and repentance. And we will find him as he says he will be. As those who have experienced this unmerited grace of God and this ultimate and lavish forgiveness, there really is only one response, and it must be heartfelt joy and worship. David closes this psalm in verse 11 with three commands for us. He says, first of all, be glad. Secondly, rejoice. And thirdly, shout for joy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. 
For those who know the forgiveness of God, there should be unceasing, genuine rejoicing. Give him the praise that he deserves. Shout joyfully to God in praise. This is the natural response of one who understands the depths of what God has done, of what he's forgiven us of. You know, it saddens me that many times Christians who are forgiven, children of God, who are the beneficiaries of God's divine pardon, whose sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ, still walk around with a sullen and oppressed disposition. They continue to mull over their past sins over and over again, continuing to relive them and beat themselves up over and over again. Some even say things like, well, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. What? What Bible verse is that? Where is that in the scripture? Of course you can't forgive yourself. That's impossible. Forgiveness has to come from the one whom you've offended. God must forgive you. And when God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. There's nothing else. The story's written. It's done. There is none of this rehearsing our sin over and over again as if God is somehow pleased over this, this kind of harsh treatment of ourselves. God says, friend, come in humble repentance and faith and you will be forgiven. I'll see how I will lavish it upon you. This is the good news of the gospel And our response is not to to walk around with a holy frown as if we're continuing to pay for our sins. No, Christ alone pays for sins and he offers forgiveness with an open hand to all who will come in genuine faith and repentance. Brothers and sisters, how long has it been since you sincerely rejoice before God over your forgiveness? I was thinking about it this week as I was studying and by God's grace, I've been a believer for almost 30 years. And I, for, for the vast majority of my life, have known what it is to be forgiven. And because of that, I, I'm, I've become used to this sense of security and forgiveness in God. I don't, I don't question his forgiveness by his grace. But because of that, because that's now my normal experience by God's grace, I can tend to, to just not appreciate it for what it is anymore. We've got to go back to the roots of what God has done for us. And if you've been a believer for 50, 60, 70 years or six minutes, rejoice in your forgiveness. Shout for joy. I am redeemed. He's washed it away. Even the sins I don't know that I will commit tomorrow, he says I paid for them all. This is the good news of forgiveness. There's so much for us to take away this morning. I just want to draw our attention for a few moments to a few key responses. And I want to talk first to believers. If you're confident by God's grace that you are in Christ this morning, let me just say four quick things to you. Two of them are questions and two are statements. Question number one, is there any hidden sin in your life this morning? Any sin. You're a believer, but you're holding on to some sin and you're, you, you just, for a time, are refusing to repent. Listen, follow David's lead. Take this wise instruction. Do not hide your sin. Come to God. Be honest with the God who already knows the truth. Repent and find forgiveness. Find restoration 
to the intimacy of relationship that God intends for his people, his sons and daughters. Secondly, are you stubborn when it comes to confession of sin? Just as a pattern in your Christian life, are you, are you typically stubborn? Does it take you a long time to finally say, okay, I repent to God and to others? Again, follow David's advice. Don't be like the horse. Don't be like the mule that has to be drug into repentance. Come to God. He stands ready to forgive. Thirdly, rejoice in your forgiveness. Take some time today in your heart. Pour out thanksgiving to the Lord. Pour out gratitude. Think deeply upon what he has done for you the depths of forgiveness he's lavished upon you, and make it a regular habit in your prayer time to give praise to God for his forgiveness. Let it not become old hat for any of us. Finally, number four, imitate God's gracious forgiveness. Imitate God's gracious forgiveness. We cannot selfishly receive the lavish, immediate full restorative forgiveness of God and then turn around and sinfully withhold that from others. We must stand ready to forgive until repentance is sought and when it's sought, we give it and we give it with a free hand. Then we imitate the forgiveness of our God and of our Savior. Lastly, let me speak to you if you're here this morning and if you're honest, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you are interested, perhaps you have thought about it, but at this point, you just really are not there. Let me say to you this morning, call upon God while he may be found. Call upon him while he may be found. Friend, you have breath in your lungs today, and that may not be true tomorrow. That's not to scare you. It's just to say the scriptures are clear. Call upon the Lord while he may be found, insinuating that there will come a time when he will not be found in the sense that it will be too late. But if you will humble yourself and repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as that perfect sacrifice that paid for your sins, then you will be able to say with David, as he said in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Friend, that can be your biography if you will only humble yourself and come in repentance and faith this morning. And I pray that you will. The blessing of God's forgiveness must drive us to repentance and worship. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that this may be true of us. Sometimes words like forgiveness become so familiar to us that uh, they, they tend to lose the significance that they once had. And I pray this morning that that would not be the case for us, but that we would be renewed in our appreciation for this gift of forgiveness that you freely lavish upon us for all who will come to Christ and be washed, covered by his blood. Father, we pray that you would give us a renewed sense of gratitude, that you would save those who are lost, that you would help those to extend forgiveness who perhaps are withholding it. And for anyone who's here that's hiding and harboring secret sin, God, today may your 
heavy hand of conviction be upon them to the end that they are driven to genuine and full repentance, that they might be restored. We love you. We thank you for these truths. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.